welcome to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Lyon, and I want to thank you for joining me as we explore the world of small grains production and research at Washington State University. We have weekly discussions with researchers from WSU and the USDA ARS to provide you with insights into the latest research on wheat and barley production. My guest today is Scott Hulbert. Scott is the Cook Chair for Cropping Systems Pathology here at Washington State University. He moved back to Washington State University in 2006. He graduated from WSU in 1979, but left the Northwest shortly after that. Scott's first faculty position was at Kansas State University, where he stayed 17 years before he moved back to the Northwest. Hello, Scott. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me over. So, uh, Scott, what brought you back to WSU after graduating so many years ago? Well, I've, I've always always liked Pacific Northwest agriculture and, and Pacific Northwest growers. I grew up uh, farming in western Washington uh, as a kid. Um, I was at Kansas State for a long time before coming back. Uh, I didn't really plan on staying there that long, uh, but I liked Kansas State University. It's a lot like WSU. Uh, but when I saw the job opening here, I thought, well, maybe it's, maybe it's time to get back to Northwest. Has that been a good move for you? Yeah, it's been good. I mean, I, I've really enjoyed it. I've, I still have, I have brothers and cousins and stuff in the ag industry, and, it, and it's good to be back in the same area. Well, we're, we're glad to have you. What is, what is your general approach to thinking about improving cropping systems? My, my general approach is to try and address problems like soil health or soil degradation or, or, or something and think about what uh, an, a different type of farming would be that might, you know, improve that, kind of an aspirational type of uh, farming approach. And then try and figure out why we aren't using that approach, you know, what the problems with it are, and try and find solutions to some of those problems. So I'll give you an example. the the wheat summer fallow system in, in our lower rainfall areas are pretty hard on soil, you know, especially due to the, the tillage that's done during the fallow season. Um, you know, so what would a solution to that be? One solution might be a fi find a way to have less fallow. So, you know, maybe that would be a rotation crop that you would grow uh, every once in a while instead of a fallow that would, you know, be reasonably profitable on one year's moisture. Um, another approach might be a wheat line that, that was easier to plant into no-till in the low rainfall area. Maybe one that performed well when you uh, planted it in November after the weather, after the soil moisture got better, you know, uh, after it rained a few times. A higher rainfall example might be, uh, you know, why can't a grower go out into his field and uh, spray out the weeds one day, weeds and volunteers one day and plant wheat the next day. You know, we know that, uh, and growers know that when, when you do that, you have a lot of Greenbridge disease problems on your uh, wheat seedlings. Um, but what if we had a wheat line that was resistant to all those Greenbridge diseases, you know, then, then we could do that. So uh, a lot of my approaches are kind of genetic approaches because my training's it is in genetics, uh, so I, I I think I try and think of genetic approaches to solving a lot of these uh, problems. Your background's also in plant pathology. Does that uh, 
come into your thinking yeah, as well? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, um, you know, a lot of the problems we have with with things like no-till or direct seeding and stuff are, are plant pathology problems. So uh, in, in crops like wheat, you know, reasonably low input, we, we generally try and solve our problems, our pathology problems by genetics, you know, breeding. Um, and, and there's, there's become kind of an expectation like that because to have a variety that fixes everything, uh, you know, the plant breeders do a great job. They don't have time to breed for certain problems, you know, especially they don't have time to, in energy or resources to breed for a cropping system that nobody's using, but a cropping system that, you know, I wish we were using for some reason, you know, mm -hmm. so that, that what I is kind of what how what I feel my role is is to you know see if we can make a a wheat variety that doesn't get Greenbridge diseases for example. So as you think about some of these um, aspirational systems and some of the alternative crops that might be needed to fit into this, do you have some favorites for our cereal crop rotations around here? Yeah, I, I, you know, in this higher rainfall area where we're sitting right now, it, there's lots of possibilities. Of course, in the in the lower rainfall areas there's a lot fewer. Um, I kind of like brassicas, you know, the the uh, canola uh, crops like that. Uh, they're broadleafs, you know, so it, 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 it really breaks the disease cycle if you're just growing cereals. Um, and of course, as you know, uh, you can use completely different herbicides. So it, it helps you kind of diversify that, your weed control strategy too. So uh, brassicas are among my favorites. Coal, canola acreage is, is up, you know, last couple of years. We're, we're growing more of that. I, I like to see that. Um, as you know, I dabble in camelina a little bit too. It's, it's a crop I like, uh, there, and there's several of us that dabble in it, but it's a crop I'd like to see out in the lower rainfall areas. It's still got some problems. One of them is a market, you know, so we're trying to as we're, we improve it a little bit, we're trying to think of how to develop a market too. You know, like we're working on edible varieties that are that are that have a oil con composition that the FDA is happy with. You know, uh, that that would be something I'd like to see happen. We've we've got a line that meets the FDA requirements, but uh, you know, would you see? Uh, it's hard to create a market, um, but you know, I, I think I think we're doing what we can. One thing I noticed coming from the Great Plains myself from Nebraska and, and crop rotations to control weeds was we had a lot of success introducing a summer crop into that winter wheat fallow rotation. Mm -hmm. But that's a lot more difficult here in the it Pacific is. Northwest where we don't get much rain during the summertime. Have you looked at all at any potential mm -hmm. summer crops? or? Well, I guess a spring a spring crop is changing it up some in the, in the lower rainfall area. A true summer crop... Uh, would, well, I think you're referring to things that you can plant later, like sunflowers, stuff exactly. like that. Yeah, yeah, that would be nice. I, again, it's the problem is you know where do we sell it right now, mm -hmm. uh, and would we grow enough of it to create it some kind of market? Uh, but no, I I get your point totally there. Just my own weed science bias, I guess. <laughs> Getting back to plant pathology, though, stripe rust is probably one of the most damaging diseases of wheat. Are you doing work on stripe rust? Yeah, we we are. We I've always liked working on rust. I've worked on maize rust and 
and wheat rust. Uh, uh, and it and it certainly have uh, been a big problem in wheat everywhere in the country. In, in the northwest here, it's mainly stripe rust. Um, what we've been doing is looking for forms of resistance that would be, you know, what they call what we call durable. And as you know, the biggest problem with with resistant varieties is they don't stay resistant. So we say the resistance wasn't durable. Uh, and what's happening is the the pathogen just the the fungal rust population just evolves. It changes pretty rapidly, or at least a little bit every year, and eventually overcomes uh, resistant varieties that are grown on a large acreage. And the ones that have kind of held up, um, you know, a lot of times it's because the resistance was really controlled by a lot of genes, and, and uh, th those type of resistance aren't really easy to transfer into your new varieties. Um, so it, it's kind of a constant battle. What we're looking for you know, is a single gene that remains durable, a, a single gene that's easy for breeders to move, manipulate. Um, so we're looking at one now that, that's been durable and, and we're trying to isolate it and see what it is so that we can, I think if we could see what it is, we could see if we're just lucky, if we're lucky that it's lasted this long or if it's really something novel that, uh, you know, in, in try and learn how to see if it's something novel, then we would know it would give us an idea how to find more of those type of genes, you know. Another approach we've been taking is a transgenic approach. You know, we've got some trans, some genes that we've put in wheat uh, that that we're evaluating that, that seem pretty promising. Uh, you know, the problem with that is uh, I see the com big companies that would commercialize something like this aren't really looking for a transgene right now. Uh, so the, the interest... I'm not sure the interest is there when I talk to them about the, you know this next great gene. Um, so you know it seems like in wheat for now anyway, us uh, transgene propo proponents are, are losing the battle. I think, and I, I'm starting to you know you're my age. I'm start you're, I'm starting to worry about whether I'd like to see something happen before I retire. You know what I, you know what I mean? And and if we're not if we're not growing any GMO wheat, then then that approach is. Uh, you know, it's too slow for me. Um, you, generally, a, a GMO is when you put a piece of DNA in the the, the plant, in the wheat plant. Uh, these new gene editing approaches are more acceptable, it looks like. They're not considered GMOs, um, but you're not putting a, a gene in there. You're just kind of tweaking a gene that's in there a little bit. So uh, we're looking for a gene that you could, we can do that to that would make it resistant. It's easier to think of them. It's easier to find a gene that you can put in there to muck up the, the rust fungus biology than it is to find a gene that's in there and just tweak it. But we're, we're looking for one right now, and I'm ho hopeful that we can find something. Very interesting. So if, if our uh, listeners want to learn more about what you're doing, is there someplace they can go to find that information? Yeah, I have, I have a web page on the uh, plant pathology, WSU plant pathology website. Uh, if you look under people, I'm there. Yeah. Okay. Very good. So we'll put that into our episode notes so listeners can go find that easily by going to uh, the Wheat and Small Grains website at smallgrains.wsu.edu. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for listening to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. 
If you have questions for us that you'd like to hear addressed on future episodes, please email me at drew.lyon at wsu.edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu. You can also find us on social media on Facebook and Twitter at WSU Small Grains. Subscribe to the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next week.